the best thing you can do is have plans in place before mm. you get into the moment. No one could have predicted COVID, but everyone can have at the beginning of the year a budget and a plan that is all lights are green, lights are yellow, and lights are red. That's the best way to be ready for these things is to know what levers can we pull and what is going to be the situation in which we would pull those levers. And so it's really about strategic planning beforehand. We as a company sort of saw this coming in March and started to create those plans just in case. We're going to start with first, where are the costs that are more about long-term growth that we don't need in the next six to 12 months, right? What are the um, hiring plans that we have? And are those things that are immediately needed right now? Or are they things that we can push off? What are the marketing spends? What are the internal spends? And, and we sort of looked at those and looked at it from a priority perspective of where can we save money without really impacting the business? And that was sort of mm -hmm. the level one. The second was just talking to our team and saying, you know, you might want it, but where do you not need it to really execute on your plans? And there was some, there was a more chunk of dollars. And sort of those were easy, right? No one was, no one was debating it. It was like, oh yeah, we weren't going to spend it anyway, or maybe we just didn't do a great job of budgeting. Then from that point, it becomes, okay, where are we actually asking people to give things up in terms of budget or in terms of future hires or whatever it might be? And also your ethos needs to flow through it. And what we said was impacting people's salaries, impacting employment is absolutely the furthest last resort possible thing that we would ever consider, right? It has to be to a point where the world is literally falling apart and this company is falling apart before we would do anything like that. Hey, this is Danny and welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. You know, we're not just another boring finance or procurement podcast. We explore the sometimes challenging stories and learnings when people, spend, and organizations meet, and how to drive sustainable growth while still balancing control and agility. We have vulnerable, honest, and raw conversations with only the most forward-thinking CFOs, finance executives, and procurement leaders who are challenging the status quo, that the way we've done it is just not enough. This is Spend Culture Stories. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. This is Danny, and I'm super excited to welcome another distinguished guest for you today. Please welcome John Tabas, the founder and CEO of The Booth Company. And I'm personally super excited to talk to you, John, just because, you know, um, as a girl, I love flowers. And I think it's really amazing that you're creating such beautiful moments with your business model and also that you work with local florists and designers to actually uh, produce your products. So that's always something that I personally really love within your business model. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So just a little fun question to start off the show. We ask every guest this because, you know, it's a way to get vulnerable and just to, you know, start off in a lighthearted way. So maybe, John, tell me a little bit more about an embarrassing moment that you've had. Oh, gosh. Embarrassing <laughs> moments. Certainly many over the years. I think one that stands out for me was a seventh grade choir. This is going ways back a ways. I'm, I'm pretty old. But Boys to Men was like the group, right? And so mm -hmm. in seventh grade, we had the, the regular choir that we were all a part of. And then we had a chance to sort of pick any song and in a group or as an individual, try out to sing. And uh, I got two of my buddies. We got together and we were going to do the Boys to Men version of the National Anthem which is like a lot of nice. very <laughs> complex and it was seventh grade. Right. So it was like puberty was sort of happening. And in the middle of our tryout, it's not like my voice changed, 
but all of a sudden I couldn't sing like the high notes that I was supposed oh, to. Oh no! And I dropped the full octave down and started singing really low. And like my guys, in my group were like, "What are you doing?" Like I had this like really high sort of tenory voice, and I was like, you know, prepubescent voice. And I was, but again, I was in the middle of that change, and like I could feel my throat constricting, and I dropped it down. It was so super embarrassing because oh, everyone, no. everyone essentially made fun of me for that, like for the rest of, of the go. And we ended up not making the show, but uh, oh. that was super embarrassing. That's so awesome. And thank you so much for sharing that. Like I can kind of relate because I used to be in choir also during high school and I've definitely had something pretty similar to that experience. Not really like dropping a low per se, but more like I forgot the words. So yeah, yeah. yeah. That's us, awesome. Us former singers, reformed singers, I'm sure we all share something embarrassing in choir at some point. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I know sometimes people try to write off that question with something that's not that embarrassing. So I'm glad that you were able to open up with me right away. Super embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about your company, Books. Obviously, I love the business model. I love the initial idea. So how did you actually get the idea in the first place? You know, tell me about the founding story. Sure. So uh, it kind of came from two places. So my co-founder and IJP, we actually started a band together in college and that's how we met. And Mm -hmm. um, we stayed in touch over the years and he was a biochemist by education um, and then um, worked for about a decade-ish in the States and then moved back to Ecuador where he was running a flower farm. And Mm -hmm. my career was in sort of strategy and brand. So Bain & Company, the Walt Disney Company. And um, I had gone to a startup called Shoe Dazzle, which was Kim Kardashian's subscription shoe service. And I was working there as VP of brand after having left Disney. And he reached out because he was seeing just challenges from the farmer's perspective in the way that the supply chain in flowers works. Mm -hmm. And in particular, his farm, they invested very heavily in their people and very heavily in sustainability. And what was frustrating him was there was no way for the customer to even know that that was happening because their flowers got sold into wholesale and that got mixed up at, at import, and then it got mixed up at a wholesaler, and then it got mixed up at a florist, and then it got ordered by whomever. And so there was just no transparency on all these great things they were doing. And so they didn't make any money for doing these things. And then worse was the customer wasn't even educated that sustainability or, or labor mattered, like labor treatment mattered. And so he really wanted that message to make it to the customer. So he was developing a way to ship directly to the florist, so the florist could then know those things and then pass that along to their customers. Sort of in parallel to me talking to him about that and trying to help him a little bit sort of as a consultant, I went on and, and to buy flowers for my mom. And I was just super frustrated by the website experiences that I had. Mm-hmm. All the different sites looked the same in terms of their designs, the same photography, the same lighting, the same everything. And then when I went to order, it told me, the websites told me it was going to be $19.99 or $24.99. But when I got the checkout, it was like $74. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Why is this happening? And it kept happening. It happened three or four times. And I got really frustrated. So eventually I gave up and I, and I purchased those flowers for my mom. But now I was in this weird moment where as a human being, I just did something very nice. I sent my mom flowers. I should feel good. Mm-hmm. And instead I felt frustrated. That was a weird juxtaposition of, of emotional feelings. And mm-hmm. I thought, I'm now upset with you brands for forcing me to go through all these, jump through all these loopholes and eventually end up paying $74, something that I thought I was going to spend $25 on. And it just felt bad. And I thought, what's going on here where my co-founder now, but at the time my friend, was frustrated with the way that the industry treated him. And I, the consumer in that moment, was frustrated with the way I was being treated by the websites. 
And, uh, and that's when I called him and I said, hey, what's going on in this industry such that this is the reality for the two most important players in the whole ecosystem, the grower and the buyer, were both frustrated. Mm-hmm. There's something going on here. And so we put our heads together and started talking about what those problems were, lack of transparency, no vertical integration, no data, no technology to manage the flow of the product. And then on the consumer side, non-transparent pricing, brands that don't really stand for anything, low quality misalignment of incentives, all these other things. And so we said, hey, we think we can fix those things. Let's let's start a company to do it. Wow. That's so awesome because I can definitely relate to some of those pain points. I was trying to um, buy my friend flowers, especially during, you know, COVID-19. I try to make her special um, on her birthday and I felt the same way. I was like, why are they charging me an extra $20 for this packaging? Another like $5 for a freaking card, which should cost me, you know, like $1 maybe maximum. So I can definitely relate to the pains. I'm so glad that you were able to um, find a business model that worked for everybody to make everybody's lives much more beautiful and easy. You just need to go to books.com. We make it really easy. Now I know. I actually didn't know about you guys until we booked you for the podcast. So now I know where to go. <laughs> so as this is a podcast that focuses on the stories and intricacies when you know people spending and organizations meet, can you tell me a little bit more about your fundraising journey? You know, how did you get your company up and running? Um, who did you speak to to get the funding? Sure. So in the very beginning, we were funded, but very lightly so. So my co-founder and I each put in $4,000. And I got my mom and dad to put in $1,000. And I got my sister to put in a couple thousand dollars. And I got a couple buddies from Bain back in the day to put in $1,000. So we sort of just packed together little bits and pieces of cash we actually launched the company on a, t- a grand total of $13,000 of invested capital. Wow. And uh, that is not enough to do anything, but we were scrappy, we were driven, and we had a bunch of people who really believed in it that were pitching in time for free. So the company at the very beginning was my co-founder and I. I, I quit my job at Shoe Dazzle, focused on this full time. My co-founder kept his job working for a farm because that was actually an asset for us. And then I found a, a UCLA intern who, just, who said he would work for free and get paid if we get funding at, at some point, sort of real funding. Um, mm-hmm. and then I had a, 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 a former employee of mine at a previous stop who worked as an unpaid intern in marketing. And I had a friend of mine who uh, worked for us for free. He was working at an ad agency, worked as sort of our creative director. And then we had friends and friends of friends. And my mom pitched in on customer service and just sort of people put their heads together and said, hey, we can get this thing off the ground. And it was very hectic and very difficult because we were all remote. We were all using at the time WhatsApp and, and phone to, to get the thing off the ground. And then we would meet once a week at a little diner up in, um, in Santa Monica on Wednesday mm-hmm. nights. We'd meet from like 7 to 10 p.m. and everyone get together. And, and it was enough to get it going. And so we, you know, we launched the company on that. It, the, the website didn't look great, but it, it did its job. And we did you know $8,000 of revenue in the first month. So it was like, yay, oh, wow. bucks. that's great. It's almost as much as we raised for the company. And we just sort of built the business from there. I mean, 12 and then 40 and then 100. And pretty soon we were on the, on the path towards millions of dollars of revenue. I went out and tried to fundraise for real maybe two months after we launched. And so I had, having had worked at Shoe Dazzle, I got to meet a couple of the board members. They were investors. Some friends had raised money for companies. So I got some introductions. And what I found very quickly was I had no idea what I was doing. I was pitching to the wrong people. I was doing a terrible job of it. I was doing it in a very nonchalant way. I came from the Walt Disney Company, right, which is this like world-class big organization. And I thought of us as this ragtag group of people trying to figure it out. And I sort of approached fundraising that way. And it was very, it was much too casual. It was much too early. So after about five, six weeks of that, I shut it down. And I realized that I didn't know what I was doing. 
And the business did, just didn't have enough traction on it. So we focused on the business for a couple more months, three, four more months, got to that you know, bigger revenue numbers. And then we went out and raised money and sort of with a much better approach, a cleaner deck, um, knowing who to talk to more. And we still didn't get like, you know, we didn't get Andreessen Horowitz to write a $3 million check, but we got some angel investors to put in, you know, 25,000, 50,000, and then some friends of friends who were at micro VCs put in a hundred, 200,000. And pretty quickly we had gathered together about $500,000. And that was really the catalyst to then drive our $1.7 million round. We got kind of a half million soft circled. And then um, uh, WaveMaker Partners, which is a, a VC here in LA said, we'll put in a, a chunk. And then pretty quickly Quest Venture Partners from the Valley came down and and all of a sudden we had it, we had a seed round pulled together and that ended up being a grand total of $1.7 million. But it really started with those small checks of of local angels and and that sort of building our reputation around town and and helping us uh, gain an audience with those bigger investors. That's really amazing. And I think that's such an important lesson too for a lot of um, you know, earlier stage startup founders, where um it's all about the vision, right? It's all about having the right people in very early and then once the time is right, that's when you really start approaching some of these bigger guys when you start scaling up. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people think that what they need to do is build an idea and build a product and then go raise money. The mm-hmm. reality is, is money will come when you start creating value, right? Whether it's through revenue or users or audience or connections or big clients or whatever it might be, traction is what creates cash interest, right? Sometimes, depending on who you are, you can raise money on an idea or, or like a, a couple screenshots. But nowadays, because startup costs are lower and lower and competition for dollars is higher and higher, you have to push the company further without having raised money. Now, some folks do that because, you know, friends and family can give them $2 million. And so then they go out and say, hey, we're raising our seed round and look at all this we've done because their friends and family round was $2 million. My friends and family rounds thirteen thousand dollars. Some friends and family rounds are twenty five bucks, right? But none of that should be an impediment to a founder to getting to that stage. It's really just about doing what you need to do to get to that next milestone. And as long as you keep hitting those milestones, you know, investment will come. I love that, and I know you've always been a big supporter and also um, a driver in building brands. So obviously, right now with some of the VC backed startups, um, they're having to cut costs and extending their runway due to you know what's going on with the world and the downturn. So as a marketer to a founder who understands the power of brands, how could one build a brand that lasts throughout the test of time and throughout like crisis? Sure. It's a great question. I'm going to leave the sort of financial part to the side, like how to manage that part. I'm going to talk more about the brand yeah, because there's a lot of things we could talk about on that side. But the way that I think brands add value in the world is that they, they stand for something that's beyond the transaction. And that was actually a big part of why we wanted to start the Pooks companies. We didn't see that in Floral. We didn't see brands that, that stood the test of time that really stood out in the world and, and said, hey, we exist for a reason that's beyond selling you something. And, and this was ingrained in me at the Walt Disney Company, which is one of the most iconic brands in the world, because it means so much to people. You know, at, at, at Disney, we would engage with customers and it had almost nothing to do with what they were going to buy from us. It had everything to do with the way the brand made them feel with their families, either how they felt when they were kids watching Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck or whatever it might be, or how they felt the first time they went to Disneyland or Disney World or the first time that they brought home a Minnie Mouse doll for their daughter or whatever those experiences were. Customers almost never talked about, oh, yeah, I want to buy this service or this product from you. It's just not the way they thought of the brand. And that is how brands become lasting brands that make it through crisis. Now, 
the Walt Disney Company right now has all the parks are shut down. All the movie theaters are shut down. They're dealing from a business perspective with a lot of things that are taking a lot of actions. But mm-hmm. all of that is sort of secondary. And the reason they, they get the right to sort of work their way through these tough times is because of that place that they hold in people's hearts. And that's really, I think, for any branded business, that's really what you want to aim for. Anyone can create a product and sell it on a website, especially with the advent of Shopify. Anyone in the world can go out there and sell something online. That is not going to get a business to scale. That's not going to to create a business that lasts a long time. You have to find places where you stand for things. And that sometimes means turning away business. That means more than the transaction. So just as an example, at the Books Company, we vertically integrated back to the farms because we wanted to source sustainable flowers and solve that problem for the farmer that my co-founder had. We wanted to tell that story. We make less money by doing it that way. We could do it much more cheaply. We get cheaper flowers, cheaper logistics by just going and buying the same flowers that everyone else buys. But then we're just a transactional business that isn't standing for this unique thing in the world. And so my advice to anyone would be through supply chain, through marketing, through branding, through user experience, you know, build something that is unique and that tells a story and that speaks to people on, on a level beyond the economic, beyond the transactional. And that'll get you through those, those tougher times. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love that story. You know, even just from visiting the Books website on the homepage, it really says a lot what you guys are doing for the industry, you know, with the, that statement saying how you're supporting Black Lives Matter, saying how you support human decency. So that's definitely something that I really commend you guys on um, as a brand. Yeah, you know, that's the thing is we've been a pretty human brand since the beginning. We've mm-hmm. we've never, we've tried to reduce that. There's this thing that happens between companies and people, right, where their distance happens. And with yeah. some brands, it's very distant, right? Goldman Sachs, like that is a brand that's like up there and we're all down here, right? And not, not, yeah. not that that's a bad thing. And other brands get really up close and personal. And we always felt like because of what our product is, right? We, we enter people's homes when people die. We enter people's homes when they're in love, when someone's sick, when someone's congratulated. These are very intimate moments. We wanted mm-hmm. to not be this separate brand. And so our personal values as a leadership team and as a company have to in this moment of a lot of pain for our African-American brothers and sisters, or a lot of pain for people of, of color everywhere around the world, we have to say something and we have to do that front and center. We could have just as easily, and, and it would have been no more right or wrong, said, we're going to help this community in a very quiet way, you know, sort of behind the scenes. Um, but that's not who we are as a brand. And so for us, we felt like it was both the right thing to do, but also really who we are as a company mm-hmm. and what our brand stands for. We're a brand that's about spreading kindness and about spreading love. And, and how can that exist in a world where systemic and, and overt racism is happening, right? Yeah. We aren't doing our jobs if we don't fight this fight as well. And so it was personal to the entire leadership team and the company that we, we get out front and center with it. And I love that, you know, that's truly brand integrity. And that's truly what you guys are standing for, not just as leaders of the business per se, but actually as people. And I think that's what really gets people to, really buy into the vision and actually build trust and loyalty. So I really, really appreciate what you guys are doing on that end. Thanks. So this is um, normally a podcast for people who work in finance. So hearing this, it might be you know, something that they might understand, but from a financial perspective, it sometimes gets a little bit tricky to balance, especially for those companies that are struggling right now through these times. They're talking about like cutting costs. They're talking about how do we save money? So how can a CEO or founder best work with the CFO as a business partner to navigate these situations? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think the best thing you can do, and this is too little too late for anyone who's in this situation now and, and wasn't already there, but the best thing you can do is have plans in place 
before mm-hmm. you get into the moment. No one could have predicted COVID, but everyone can have at the beginning of the year a budget and a plan that is all lights are green, lights are yellow, and lights are red. That's the best way to be ready for these things is to know what levers can we pull and what is going to be the situation in which we would pull those levers. And so it's really Mm -hmm. about strategic planning beforehand. We as a company sort of saw this coming in March and started to create those plans just in case. Sort of what is it that we're going to start with first? What are the costs that are more about long-term growth that we don't need in the next six to 12 months, right? What are the um, hiring plans that we have? And are those things that are immediately needed right now? Or are they things that we can push off? What are the marketing spends? What are the internal spends? And, and we sort of looked at those and looked at it from a priority perspective of where can we save money without really impacting the business? And that was sort of mm-hmm. the level one, right? Where like, we're going to keep going and it's not going to impact anything short-term or long-term, but maybe we just weren't tight enough on our budgeting pro- you know, processes. The second was just talking to our team and saying, where do you not need it? You know, you might want it, but where do you not need it to really execute on your plans? And there was some, there was a more chunk of dollars. And sort of mm-hmm. those were easy, right? No one was, no one was debating it. It was like, oh yeah, we weren't going to spend it anyway, or maybe we just didn't do a great job of budgeting. Then from that point, it becomes, okay, where are we actually asking people to give things up in terms of budget or in terms of future hires or whatever it might be? And also your ethos needs to flow through it. And what we said was impacting people's salaries, impacting employment is absolutely the absolute furthest last resort possible thing that we would ever consider, right? It has to be to a point where the world is literally falling apart and this company is falling apart before we would do anything like that. And so Mm -hmm. we set forth just a set of guidelines that what do we stand for? And the first thing we stood for was keep our employees safe, right? But different companies have different levers and different economic realities where that might have to be earlier in your consideration set. You know, I have a friend of mine who has a business that's directly related to education, And when Mm -hmm. the schools shut down, their revenue went to zero in a day. There's no choice at that point, right? He had to lay off his entire company, I think 1,300, 1,400 people overnight because there was, it's not like they were a business that had millions of dollars in the bank and venture back. This was a homegrown mom and pop sort of, you know, bootstrap business and they went to Mm -hmm. zero and then they found a way within months to get, kind of come back going. They, they rehired half of the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. And so your reality is going to be different depending on the type of business you run, how you're impacted by the moment. But the best thing you can do is have green, yellow light, red light plans. And it's not like you're starting from scratch when you're in the moment. It's like, oh, we need the red light plan. All right, let's go implement. I love that. And that's such good advice to really prepare for the worst. But also it's like, don't don't think too poorly about the situation, you know, to keep on going and still keep on with the vision. And I can tell that the Boost company is very focused on its people. And that's something that we really love here um, at Procurify. You know, that's why we call the podcast Spend Culture, because really each person in a company, each employee, they actually contribute to the spending culture over an organization. So that's something that we really resonate with at your company as well. So how do you describe the spend culture of the Boots company? Let's say since you started out as a small team versus till now, you have, I think, 80 something employees, right? Yeah, we're definitely much bigger and we're much more sophisticated than we were. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think back to the early days when it was, you know, five or six of us bootstrapping that this thing. And then we grew to like 15, 16 people with one person in finance and just this shift in sophistication in tools in data and in people is just so massive, right? And that's, that's natural, right? Companies that have $1.7 million in the bank of a seed round versus we announced in January, a $30 million growth round, they have different resources available to them. So the the depth, the breadth, and the quality of what you have available to you is 
entirely different. And I can say, right, you know, today our CFO, Tony Rodriguez, um, with his VP, Tom, in finance and accounting, I would put our finance and accounting team up against any startup in, in the business. And it's that quality of people, quality of systems, uh, quality of data, and, and the discipline, and really having finance be a leadership function in the organization, not sort of a service provider, but really mm-hmm. a, a strong voice at the table when you make strategic decisions, when you make people decisions and cultural decisions. You know, Tony has brought, and, and Tony's been with us for about a year now, has brought such a strong financial focus and culture to the company that it's really transformative. And we talk about things differently as a result. We know our data better because there's always questions being asked about it. And thinking about finance as a primary seat at the table, rather than as a service provider to the org or just to spit out reports or whatever, is really fundamental to being financially healthy in good times and in bad. It gives you a lens and a set of knowledge that you know, we just didn't have in the earlier, uh, again, earlier phases of the business, not through anyone's fault, just because we couldn't, we couldn't necessarily invest in those things. We had great people at those times working their butts off, doing their best to make it work. But we're at a place now where it's really a, a voice that materially impacts strategic decision making. And that's when I think the function is, is healthiest and the company is healthiest as a result. I think it's really rare to have, you know, finance leaders that also have vision like this with Tony. So you guys are definitely very lucky. I've spoken to him. <laughs> I make fun of Tony all the time because he's like the least CFO, CFO you'll ever meet because he is, he's very buttoned down on the numbers and stuff, but he's also entrepreneurial. He loves trying new things. He loves experimenting. He loves the potential of what we can build. And so uh, working with him and his team is, is a real pleasure. That's amazing. And I think like um, the CFOs that kind of get it, you know, they can speak other people's languages, empathize with why they want to, you know, spend the money that they do and actually explain why this is, you know, not viable or viable. Those are the best CFOs. So you guys are definitely lucky to have such a great team. Absolutely. So curious, let's talk a little bit more about the supply chain side. You know, we kind of talked about how supply chain is one of the key drivers within a business, especially with the e-commerce business like yours. So how are you currently working with your suppliers in kind of this remote economy? And what does the procurement of flowers look like, actually? I don't know about this, so I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, so the sort of how has it changed in this environment part is actually a very boring and very quick answer, which is it hasn't really changed at all for us. Mostly because we were just sort of, already set up for remote distribution. That's that's how we've been built since the beginning. We certainly didn't know that a global pandemic was going to happen seven years later when we launched the business that way. We just felt like that was the best way to build the business. And so mm-hmm. in terms of change, it hasn't really changed anything. But the way that we you know tackled this industry was from a supply chain perspective first. And that is where my co-founder came from. And that enables all the brand stuff is by being vertically integrated, by sourcing directly from farmers in Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, Peru, Kenya, around the United States, Canada, wherever it might be. That gives us both nimbleness and flexibility because we're not relying on a single point of failure. So as an example, there's a lot of companies that source 100% of their product from China. And when COVID hit and everything shut down and now nothing's moving, there are companies literally saying, I can't sell anything because I can't get anything to sell. Our yeah. model is the exact opposite of that. Again, not, not with this pandemic in mind, but we source flowers from all those different countries around the world. So if a country or a farm goes down, the system can pick up the slack via another farm, another node. And that flexibility and nimbleness and not having a single point of failure has really been key to us surviving and thriving throughout this time. We, 
we didn't really see any hiccups whatsoever throughout the entire COVID timeframe because whenever, if a node shut down and you know some of our nodes were impacted, another one would just take on that load and then vice versa, they would flip back and forth. And so the whole ecosystem really kind of shares the burden instead of having you know a single a warehouse where 10,000 people work in one location in the middle of Manhattan, which got yeah. crushed and was just shut down. That's a death blow, right? You can't even legally even allowed to go into work let alone have a 10,000 people, a thousand people in one location. And so um, this distributed network, which was always designed to be direct from these family-owned farms to the customer, really has been just a stroke of luck in, uh, in the face of, of this pandemic. And it's allowed us to really keep our business moving and, and you know, satisfy our customers in a time of need. And that makes a lot of sense. And I love how diverse you guys are with the suppliers that you work with. So how do you kind of build the trust with um, all different types of suppliers around the world? And how do you manage these relationships? Because that's a lot of suppliers, you know, coming from all these different places. Is there like a system that you use or is there like a, what, what is your process on that? Yeah, so we have um, a bunch of suppliers today. We work with about 140 farms around the world. When we started, we worked with two. And one of them was the farm my co-founder ran. So we really, we acquired one other. Yeah. And, you know, in those early days, we had the same pitch, which was we're going to directly connect you directly to customers. We're going to give you, you know, more money per stem. We're going to pay you more. We're going to pay you faster. And you're going to have a really reliable partner that stands for something in the world. And we're going to tell your story. And in the early days, there weren't very many takers. It was different. It was weird. It was going to cause them to have to invest in people and time and change some processes, et cetera. And so the best way that we got people to, to try us out was just to, to prove it. And so mm-hmm. we started with those two and we had really great working relationships. We made it easy for them. We helped them make more money. So it was economically uh, beneficial. And then we, we were starting to tell this story and really raise awareness about these sustainable farmers. And so that then led to the next farm next door saying, hey, you're working with those guys. How's that? They're great. We love working with them. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. And then all of a sudden the pitch became easier and easier and easier to the point where now farms will approach us and say, can we please work on your network? We can add this, That's we can awesome. add that. And so really it was about just proving it via the experience of, of partners. And it was not a fast journey. You know, in our first year, I think at the end of the first year, we had five or six farms on board. But you know, it's, it, it becomes a pretty exponential ramp pretty quickly as, as the reputation grows. One of the funniest stories around that is that when we, we were in South America, we had a good foothold in year, the end of year one. And this is actually a Shark Tank sort of moment as well. And we wanted to start working with North American farms because we wanted to have American grown product and also be able to deliver faster. And I couldn't get any of the farms to listen to me. I would call them, I would email them, just no one would pay attention. And then we raised our Series A financing, which was a $5.5 million round led by Azure Capital in San Francisco. And it was out in, in the press. And this guy named Casey Cronquist runs the California Association of Cut Flower. So essentially it's an association of farmers. And he tweets about our Series A and essentially says, like, this company will never make it. They don't source from American farms. Oh, man. They're sort of making fun of us. And yeah. I tweeted back at him and said, hey, Casey, I've been trying to source from your farms for six months, and they've all roundly rejected me. And so we got on DM, and then we had a phone call. And within a couple of months, Casey was now on our side helping us. And wow. he was really the door that opened up all the North American farms. Now we work with farms up and down the California coast, Washington State, Ohio, Wisconsin, you name it. But it all goes back to a tweet where he was kind of making fun of our non-American sourcing strategy, which was not what we wanted it to be. We were just having troubles getting people to pay attention. And so we actually got an ally through Twitter because of a little bit of press. 
That's so amazing. And that's so beautiful. Like, you know, sometimes you see people kind of go against a company, but when you read the context of it, you think that it's a negative thing. But I love how you turn that into an opportunity. And that's, I think, such a good learning for anybody. And now Casey's a good friend and, you know, we've been allied with them for years. Really, really great people. So you never know what happens, especially in these times of social media. You might just find, you know, the next best person to work on you with something just through messaging alone. Absolutely. Serendipity, reputation, and brand, to me, are the ways that we've gotten to where we've we've gotten, right? We've had a noble Mm -hmm. cause since day one. Whenever anybody sees what we stand for, they go, I'd like to stand for that as well. So if an investor doesn't invest, they might become a customer. Great. If a farmer doesn't work with us today, they might work with us in two years, right? The journey is long. We've been at this for seven and a half years. It will be a longer journey from here. So serendipity just means pure luck. You're going to run across someone like Casey, where it just sort of works out. You know, really standing for something that people can get on board with just creates more opportunities. And then that brand amplifies all of that. And so we were probably six weeks old when we were featured in Daily Candy, which at the time was like the way that people found out about things. And then Oprah Magazine came calling because they saw it in Daily Candy. And then Google called about putting us on Google offers and Facebook called about putting us in Facebook gifts, which neither one of those products even exists anymore. But for a company that had five people working part time, getting on Google offers tens of thousands of dollars a month in revenue, that was a really big deal that really transformed things. And then you sort of go from strength to strength. That is amazing. What I think I love about you as a person and a leader is you think win-win. You know, you don't think of like, oh, win-lose, where you don't think about, oh, this opportunity might not be there. You actually turn something from the negative into a positive, which I really love. But um, also, I know you've been through a few challenges before, too, as all companies. Maybe tell me a little bit about your experience at Shark Tank since you mentioned that. You know, um, I know you guys didn't really make it throughout that round, but what are some of the learnings and how was it like? Yeah, Shark Tank, I always say this, anybody who has a chance to get on Shark Tank should absolutely go on Shark Tank. It's like the greatest thing that a consumer brand can have happen to them from a PR or an awareness perspective. And it's really just good people, the producers, the sharks themselves. It's just a really great organization. I know that Mr. Wonderful comes off like he's really mean on TV, but (laughs) they're all really great people. And so, yeah, we were very lucky to be on Shark Tank. It was transformational. We were about not even a year old when we filmed it. And then we're about a year and a half old when it aired. And um, as you alluded to, when I went in, I just got completely decimated by all the sharks. They were just 100% just like not interested. And what's funny is you see a six or seven minute segment. That's an hour and 45 minutes, two hours of filming. So we actually spent a lot of time together. I just got grilled and didn't get a deal. But again, sort of turning things into wins I left with my head held high. We had a good conversation. It was professional. It wasn't, no one was, it wasn't adversarial in any way. It was just disagreement. I think my business is great. You don't think it's great today. Maybe later on you will, right? And then, you know, lo and behold, time passes after we air and we got all this great publicity and all that kind of stuff. And then a year and a half passes after that. And I get a phone call one day and Robert Herjavec is like, hey, John, it's Robert from Shark Tank. And I was like, what? (laughs) No assistant, no scheduling, just gets my cell phone number from the producers and calls me. And he's like, I'm getting married. He was marrying Kim, his dance partner from Dancing with the Stars. And I need flowers. And the quotes I'm getting are outrageous. Can you help me save some money on this? I remember your beautiful. I thought, yeah, yeah, cool. This would be super fun. And so I started talking to him. I started talking to Kim. Long story short, we get the deal to do their wedding flowers, which ended up looking amazing. You can find pictures of people.com of it. It's just epic chandeliers made out of flour and like a whole garden wall and it is beautiful. But um, in that process, he got to know more about what we did and understand it. And at the end of that process, he said, 
you know, I know I couldn't invest at the time, which was our seed round, but we had just closed our series C of $24 million at the time. And he said, can I put some money into the company now? And we said, absolutely, we'd love to have you. So I think to this day, we're still the only company to get rejected by the sharks completely um, and then come back and, and get investment later from, from one of the sharks. I love that. And again, that's like a win-win situation once again. Like I love how you're able to magically almost transform something that normally people would think, oh, I'm so distraught. I'm not going to recover from this into, you know what, let's keep on going. And you know, okay. if fate does happen, then it does happen, right? But otherwise, let's leave it. And for me, and I think this is just the way I am, but I think people can train their brains to think this way, is mm-hmm. that I think we all as humans put a whole bunch of importance on things that are very short term. And I do this all the time too, so don't get me wrong. But in the business, I've always thought this really smart investor from whatever fund you want to imagine in Silicon Valley, because I pitched all of them, said no. But that person also passed on Facebook, right? That, that person also passed on a bunch of other deals that were really good deals. The Sharks have passed up on really great opportunities in the past. Their opinion, this is not a great business today, could be wrong. Look, we've had employees who have been unhappy at our company for whatever reason. Sometimes they were completely correct and we needed to change the way we did something, whether it was culturally or process or technology or whatever it might be. Sometimes they were wrong and they were just looking at it in the wrong way. It doesn't matter so long as you keep getting better, right? So you learn something from that experience, whether it's an employee or an investor, whatever it might be, you get better for the next one. The next person comes in and says, I really love how you do this. The person to thank is not me or one of our leaders. It's the person who told us that, that was garbage and that's why they're leaving the company. That's not a bad thing. I mean, it is that that person was unhappy with that situation or the investor didn't love your business, but it can lead to something good. And it really just depends on a matter of perspective. Are you going to take that feedback, that input, that, that information and change it into something amazing? Or are you going to say like, oh, everything's terrible right now because this person or these people said, hey, I don't like this. And so turning it all into opportunity, turning it all into, into learning is really, I think, the most important thing you can do as a founder. I love that. And that's such an inspirational message to anyone, even if you're not looking to start your own company, even when you approach work, you know, do you see it as a failure or do you see it as a lesson or an opportunity? And, so and that's life beautiful. and family and relationships and all, Absolutely. The, all the things. <laughs> totally. John, I know you have to go soon. So let's leave this as our last question of the day. What are some good habits to build up when you're building a fiscally responsible and financially sustainable company while also building an amazing company culture and brand? It's a great question. It's really hard to do all those things at the same time. One of my very early resolutions was we weren't going to get over our skis and have to raise money to stay afloat because you just don't know where the winds are going to turn from a macroeconomic environment, which is going to impact VC and private equity and all these things. And so we were very lean in the early days. And we were always within a couple months of being able to be profitable. Like if we just pulled back on marketing, if we pulled back on X, Y, and Z, we could, we could make money. That was good from a protection, sort of a, a playing defense perspective. Where it was bad was for the company culture because we weren't investing in it. We weren't spending money on space or on leadership. I'm not saying we didn't hire people. We did. But we were very, very tight with our budgets because we always wanted to have that optionality to just go and be profitable on our own. It was good and it was bad. And the reason why I say it's really hard to do them all at the same time is that if you're going to be on a growth mindset, you have to invest. You have mm-hmm. to spend the money. You have to hire the best leadership. You have to get really great space and great laptops and great this and great that because then you can get build to your next step. We were trying to sort of have our cake and eat it too. We didn't want to get over our skis by investing in all those things, but we still wanted to have the great company, the great culture. And at some point, those two just don't align. 
And so I think really what's important is choosing a path. If mm-hmm. you want to be a small sort of scrappy bootstrap business, then prepare to have very few people prepare to work 100 hours a week and just try to grind your way to it and do it on your own. If you're going to be a venture-backed sort of high-growth company, you have to be comfortable with the idea that you're going to overspend versus what you're making because you're investing in the future. And I think just getting clarity on that and knowing which type of company you want to be is probably the best thing that you can do. One isn't better than the other. I've seen lots of companies in Bootstrap that have become super successful and the founders are 100% independent. And I've seen folks who have raised billions of dollars who have done great as well. Neither path is right or wrong, but understanding which one you're choosing and really being clear about that and how your operation is going to reflect that, I think is probably the most important part. That is such a wonderful advice to leave for the last part of this podcast. So thank you so much, John, once again, for your time and also your great energy. You know, you have such a great energy and positivity to you. So I'm really glad that we were able to speak on this podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. And and next time you're going to order from books.com, right? Yes, I will. And everybody, (laughs) please check out books.com because I know you guys are probably just as tired as me when I want to spend $70 on, you know, flowers. Not reasonable. (laughs) Make them books. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, John. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of today. If you like this podcast, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another great guest. We'd also appreciate it if you give us a five-star review on iTunes for the Apple listeners out there. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a spend management solution that is making managing business spend simple. I know there's still a lot of you that are using spreadsheets, credit cards, and expense forms or a mix of the above. Perhaps you're still using a procurement module in your ERP that is clunky and outdated. Procurify helps you implement proactive controls so that purchases are tracked and approved by the right person before it hits accounts payable. Never have to worry about a surprise invoice ever again. There's a reason why over 400 customers around the world love us. Our award-winning, easy-to-use system is loved by people everywhere. It's actually a purchasing system that your employees will actually want to use, believe it or not. Check us out at Procurify.com. So that's www.procurify.com and mention the podcast for a sweet listener special on our packages. 